1: The power of that animal holding on to him was fucking unbelievable. I'm obviously screaming at this point in time because I'm not in control either. Drop the animal, and then it takes off. Now I've turned around to assess the injuries, and this African guy's walked off holding his arm like this, going "fuck, fuck, fuck," screaming, screaming. I remember he came over to me like this, and he's put his hand like that. And you know when you take like a bite out of an apple, but it's not like a complete bite; it's like a chunk of like a flat kind of falls down, kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Butterfield Effect. My name is Isaac Butterfield, and thank you very much for joining us here yet again for another episode. On today's episode, we are talking to Andrew Ukles. He is an absolutely incredible human being. He is a wildlife fanatic. He's out there catching snakes and buffaloes and lions and tigers and crocodiles. He's doing everything that absolutely terrifies me. And he's got some amazing stories that he's so kindly come along to share with us during isolation. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the podcast with young Andrew Ucalls. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. And also, if you've got a bit of time, check out the merch store and also check out our second channel. Because if you can't take on this entire podcast right now, head to the Butterfield Effect Clips channel. And that's where you can see all these podcasts cut up into tiny little bits. So you can digest them when you want. Let's welcome to the show for the first time, Andrew Euchals. Done. We're recording. Andrew Euchals, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me in our respective humble abodes. Cheers, mate. Good to have you here.
1: <laughs> You're drinking a beer, and I've got a
2: V. So uh, I just had a you. V. I like to live on the edge. Now I um, I was I was doing a home <laughs> workout prior to jumping on this, and uh, and I thought, you know what, it'd be nice to have a beer. I don't drink much at home. I've never been much of a home drinker. Um, just, right. um i didn't grow up like that i guess i guess a lot of people grow up and their family drinks at home but i'm i'm v- very rare for me to have uh have a beer although i do i do like the occasional whiskey uh whilst, right. whilst riding that's about it well,
1: that's right well i was gonna say definitely go with a beer. that's for sure in sort
2: <laughs> <Jesus. laughs> okay, Uh right. what sort of beer, what sort of beer do you drink what's that Mate, this is a pure blonde. I usually drink uh, the Burley Big Heads, which is a zero carb beer. But since being on tour for eighteen months, uh, I put on a bit of weight, so I, uh, yeah. I had to drop the carbs and um, and basically get back on a ketogenic diet and really focus on that. And so I'm going to come out of this uh, this this COVID business looking flash, looking quick. Don't worry about awesome.
1: that. Well, well, okay. So you're on the keto diet. What what meats are you consuming? What's your What's your main go-to? Chicken, Mate,
2: beef? Uh, so I, I obviously I go for the, because it's a high-fat diet, uh, low-carb. You've got to go for the more uh, higher-fat cuts. You're looking at your uh, New York steaks. You're looking at grass-fed sort of stuff. I don't fuck right. around with that shit. Bit of lamb. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, hey, I'm not against chicken. I'm not racist. It's all good, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever I can get. You've got to mix it up of course, but uh, basically it's a, yeah, it's a majority meat diet. Um, you know, I, we, we met, and, and people we well, met uh, through the internet, but through uh, a mutual friend of ours, Adam Greentree, uh, yep. the hunter extraordinaire, and he, he rang me the other night and said, mate, I, I've got to send you some uh, some deer. And, and I've never no. had, I've never had deer, ever. Really, my life. I've never okay. had any type of game meat, so I'm very interested to see to see what that uh, what that's like.
1: I think you'd fall in love with it, you know. I think it's um it's one of those meats which is versatile with what you can cook with as well, like whether it's like a stir fry or even if you want to put it on the barbecue. You know, there's definitely a way of cooking it. But um you know with game meats as well, like buffalo, pig, um, goat. Um, there's quite a diversity that we've got here in Australia that you can uh, essentially. Yeah, you can change things up pretty pretty fast when you're walking through the Australian bush. And it's funny because I feel like a lot of these animals you find in the same habitat as well. So it's like its own supermarket out there. So who knows? Yeah. Like Maybe your, your keto diet can can somewhat be um, broadened uh, in the near future for sure.
2: Mate, absolutely. Particularly with what's happening in the world. It's something uh, I think a lot of people have been thinking about is hunting, is creating their own veggie patches is you know being sustainable within their own family or their 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 unit around their house sort of thing you know like the the few maybe a block or 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 a street or something you know like it's funny how there is this massive reliance you know I've grown up with it and I'm sure you have too um well, maybe not maybe not you and and it's certainly not Adam I grew up with such a reliance on the supermarket that those trucks will just turn up and I don't have to think about anything else Whereas right. now there's that, there's that, you know, there's a lack of toilet paper, something we've, thought, we've never thought would run out. Now you start to think, oh, well, what happens if there's no steak on the shelves? What happens if there's no chicken? What happens if there's no broccoli? Right. And I think, you know, I think it's only natural that people
1: go into this kind of survival way of thinking, you know, and I think um, any, kind of, any kind of survival way of thinking is thinking for the future and thinking long term. So you can kind of understand why people are going out there into the shops trying to, you know, hoard as much as they can because there's obviously the concern of the short supply. And I think um, it's a little bit different to the the nomadic way of thinking because more nomadic styles were hunting um, in the present, so to say, you know. But it goes to show that our agricultural mindset is still in play and agricultural mindset is thinking for the future. So it's interesting, like, as much as we want to feel and think and believe that we're not part of, the natural world and our way of thinking has changed, you know, so much. It's quite untrue. I feel like uh, a lot of the instinctive reactions that you're seeing uh, when this has actually popped up, like with the virus of, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next week? These instinctive core things which are coming out are actually a part of us. It's like our primal sense of survivalism, um, to to say the least. So I think in a way it's almost romantic to see um, that people uh, are still in touch and aware of, of the essence of, you know, um, being in the moment, so to say.
2: Well, you have but to. So. You have, there has to be this at least background noise within your head when you go to bed at night and think, hang on, what if all the shit hits the fan? Like, I, I'm i certainly not prepared here. I've got a couple of knives hanging around. I've got a, <laughs> I've, I've got a compound bow that – I don't know if that's illegal to have. I've got a compound right. bow that's broken that Adam won't fix for me because he's too lazy. And right. I've got all these things. But I, but I don't have anything that can actually – uh, you know, I can use as a, as a means to hunt something. I certainly don't have probably the most useful thing, and that is the knowledge. But um, mm-hmm. it's certainly one of those things where we have so many things that go on in our daily lives. Say six months ago, that we right. have as uh, that take precedence over everything else. And now that we're stuck inside our house, and they're running out of toilet paper, and you can't wipe your ass, people start going okay, well, maybe there's more things that we need to worry about. Like, I've certainly noticed that there's less fights on Twitter. There's less people carrying on about <laughs> things that don't matter. People are literally, you know, they're, they're worried about death. As the as time's gone on and we're not thinking so much about death as we were maybe a month ago when everyone was shit scared, I think people are going to start to come back and, you know, they want to pick fights. and But it's quite interesting to see how people have reacted uh, to this whole situation.
1: Well, and I think you know, as soon as you start taking those comforts of society down, you know, like we're always born with this like blanket safety security net of knowledge that no matter what happens, the government's going to be there and we're going to be fine. And I think you know, we are, we we obviously live in probably the best place on earth. You know, um, you know Some other places though, you know, the way it's it's hit them and how they're going to try and bounce back and essentially sustain themselves. You know, it's literally it'd be interesting to see what the mind space would be on someone living in a, you know, in a very poor developing country because, you know, they themselves are living day by day. So whether this would affect them or not,
2: I like think it New is. Zealand or something like that. Right. Yeah. exactly. But no, you're right. Yeah. It, is. it is a thing. Exactly.
0: It's like,
2: you know, is a third world country putting the same um, processes in place that the that, that SCOMO's government is? And, and the answer is definitely not. They're trying, I'm sure, but they just don't have the infrastructure in place to do that, and, and the people are alone. Like, as you said, we live in the best country, but we also live in the best time ever to have right, this right, problem exactly. coming
1: around. 100%, I agree, 100%. And I think, you know, perhaps Australia's fast reaction to this virus has, you know, been on the basis that, well, Asia is our next door neighbour you know, quite literally. Uh, I know particularly here in the Northern Territory, they're very close, are uh, very quick to, to closing down the borders on the basis of, of um, you know, the concerns with, you know, the Indigenous population, but also, um, you know, tourism. Tourism is going to be affected so bad here in Australia, you know, particularly the, the, the top end. Like, if we lose the dry season up here, so essentially from June to August, um, that's, you know, another year that people are going to have to wait around. And particularly for these small, you know, ecotourism operators and stuff. It's going to absolutely devastate them. So, it's look. I think the next twelve months is going to be very interesting to see how um, how the Australian public bounces back from this. But you know, one thing I've definitely learned with Australian people is you know we're versatile. We can adapt. We can evolve. And we're fucking tolerant. You know what I mean? That's that's one thing about us. I think the social climate is that you know nothing can beat us. Nothing can get us down. And we will stick together. You know, I think that's uh, something that I love about Australia. You, we've really got that deep in
2: our psych. You're, you're a very keen Australian and I've been... Fucking oh, I am. Fucking I've got okay. fucking faith in Australia. I really do. <laughs> and I've been, in, 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 um, in preparation for this, I had a look at uh, all your YouTube videos and I it was funny because I had already seen most of them. They were showing on my screen as like I've already viewed these sort of things. So it was cool to jump back and now that I'm talking to you, but you are a wild man. You're a fucking... Oh. Right, right,
1: well, that's, I think, okay, so I've been, I've been doing this since a child, you know, since I was six years old, I was out there catching snakes, and, you know, it was one of those progressive things over the years, like, I've always been interested in animals, so I feel like a lot of people, well, I feel like everyone in the world has a sense of curiosity with animals at a young age, you know, who wasn't in the backyard, trying to catch a fucking spider in a jar or chasing skinks around or, you know, butterflies with nets and all that kind of thing. So, um, I think as a child, I was obviously very curious about that. And I just wanted to, it was almost like a list in my head. I just wanted to go around the world and catch animals and be close with animals. It was something that I was good at because I fucking suck at everything else. Um, so it was one of those things, I guess it was progressive and it was just confidence building, um, you know, dealing with animals in the natural world. And it got to a point where, um, I think because it was all self-taught knowledge, I think the interesting thing I've learned about the way that I learned and my process of learning is I struggle to learn in a way that other people learn, like in procedural step way of, of learning, because the way that I've learned my entire life has been on my own accord. And so, you know, I went through university, I did a degree, I got halfway through a master's and thought to myself, you know, fuck, I don't want to become an academic in this field because that will take away from my connection with nature. And you're probably thinking, well, how the fuck is that? And it's because, you know, doing things in a research and a procedural format essentially means that there's a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy and you can't connect with the natural world that you could as a freelancer such as myself going out there and doing that. And I think that was part of the power in, in what I had is I knew I could reach an audience of people with my knowledge, um, and do it in a way that was somewhat entertaining but you know taking a step back um um and, and looking of, of what I've done in the past you know I think there is going to be a different avenue that I'm going to be taking you know I think you know we're, we're in changing times you know it, it's not it's not like back in the day with you know you know Steve Irwin was obviously an icon of mine love Steve and um and what he'd done for the world of conservation but the days of like jumping on the backs of crocodiles and doing this and doing that. it's just like, it's, that's changing that, that, you know, people don't necessarily want to see that anymore. Or if they do want to see that there's got to be some purpose or mission statement behind everything. And I think the one thing that I've kind of been lacking in, in a lot of my content is actually having the reasonings behind, well, why the fuck is this crazy cunt doing this? So it's come to a point in time where I think my skill set's been recognized internationally. And, um, And yeah, I think there's been more focus into the purpose of what I can do with this unique skill set in a way that's going to be not just advantageous for the wildlife industry, but also in promoting wildlife and preserving those natural habitats as well. So, you know, um, I've done work with international networks in the past from discovery to history, Um, but really, you know, I'm still trying to find my niche and the concept that works. But, you know, I, I think what I do know is the fact that I've got something very unique and, um, and yeah, it's, it hasn't really been done like that before, you know? Um, so...
2: I think it's a great thing to have that mission statement and that reason behind what you're doing. I mean, one of the things that came to mind when you were saying that was when I was at, uh, I was at a Taronga Zoo, sort of, uh, they, they did this sleepover thing. You sleep there, it's great. I did it maybe four or five years ago. And I was a bit iffy about zoos. But then the head zookeeper, he said to me, mate, these guys, um, this particular one was uh, saved from this particular village or something like that that happened. I was like, okay, there's your mission statement. This is why it's here. It gives you a sort of an idea. But I also think that there's nothing wrong with what you do particularly. I mean, one of the things that I found was the first thing that I wrote down, regardless, I didn't even write your name down first. This is how excited I was about seeing this fucking footage, was you finding a coconut and then not being able to open that coconut so, you got a crocodile to bite down on the coconut to open the fucking coconut. Are you the full quid, mate? What's going on there? That is insane. Oh, that's like, that's, Chubbs. Oh, that's well, Chubbs from Happy Gilmore losing his hand shit. Right. Well, that,
1: well, so that's, well, you know, that definitely does have a mission statement and purpose. And essentially, there is tangible objectives in that. So, first, you've got to find a Cayman. Second, you've got to find a coconut. Third thing is then you've got to force the animal to break open the coconut and then eat the coconut. So there are tangible objectives that come into play there with an end result, meaning that I can sustain myself by eating the coconut, right? Uh, yeah, highly agree. It now, all look, worked I out. It, it, <laughs> I think holistically, I think you know the reason as to why I do this is to show people that we can get back to nature and we do have the instincts to do so. And, you know, that within a nutshell is fucking powerful. People are more inclined inclined to care about the environment and to care about the decisions that we make that impact on the environment if we have a connection to nature, right? And so me going out there and, you know, bringing animals to camera and talking about them and interacting with them and essentially taking people into my world is an opportunity for me to connect people in that wavelength and then hopefully they can build up the courage and all the confidence to go out there and try and do that themselves. Not to the extent where they're chasing down like fucking buffaloes or you know diving on the backs of bloody sharks and like that kind of stuff. But it does, it like my content does spark people's curiosity in trying to get out there. And so, in essence, I think there's been oh, a quarter of a billion people which have watched my content over the last several years. Uh, it's been interesting to see the amount of people and like the positive feedback that I've got from people being like, you know what. You really helped in breaking my fear and/or um, getting me involved in something that I never was going to get involved in, you know. So, yeah,
2: and and that's it. You, you you've done your job at that point, you know. Like that's a that's a powerful thing to be able to do is to get people out and interested back in nature because you know. I've seen it now with people who are locked in their house. Like they ha- they have to get out and do things. Like you see people out and it's almost like in you know, I'm in Newcastle and it's not so much a city, but you see people out and about walking and you're just like it's a bit weird, you know, to see so right. many people out in nature. But I think it's a powerful thing. I mean, you know, some of the videos on there are from the outset outrageous, like sneaking up on an African elephant like that's that's some full-on shit but it's also right. extremely interesting it's something you know it's something i would never do but there's some things i may do that you would go fuck that that's that's bullshit i'm not doing that you know and it's, 100%. it's what you find comfortable well i think you know i think
1: too like in in doing a lot of dealings with these animals as well uh, i think a lot of people watched that content when i was approaching an elephant and regardless if people knew that elephants were dangerous to approach or not I think people are interested to to see, you know, the speed of, a, of, of an animal like that, you know what I mean? And it's funny because you see so many tourists around the world that go, um, you know, close to these wild animals and take pictures and all that sort of stuff. And things can turn bad like fucking fast, you know? We're talking about animals that change their decisions on, on a dime, you know, whether it be a, Can you take us like through an
2: sneaking up on that elephant? What happened, the speed, everything, where were you?
1: Okay, so I was in Kenya at the time in the Masai Mara. So essentially, you know, when you watch those documentaries of like the Serengeti. So I was in the Serengeti and I was there with a guide and essentially I said to him, I go, I wonder how close I can get to one of those African bull elephants. And I remember he turned to me and said, look, at the end of the day, I will keep filming, but I'll have you know that if that animal gets on top of you, he's going to kill you and there's nothing we can do about it. So, um... (laughs) You know, I feel like when I was a bit younger, I was a bit more blasé about the risk associated with things because I was just like, you know, well, let's like, we've got like a big SD card, we've got to get the whole fucking thing on there, right? Yeah. Um, but look, I think when an animal like that is has made a decision to try and charge you, you're locked, you're locked in space and time. You know, you're locked in this energy that you between you and the animal, and it's interesting because when an animal is charging like this, it, like I can hear this fucking animal just behind me. Like, I can I can literally like feel the ground shaking from under my feet. It kind of revitalizes you in a way as well, you know, and it's a, a weird kind of connection that you've got with the natural world at that point in time where you're no longer the predator, you're essentially, you know, the prey item. You know, it can be really um, a really interesting situation to be, in, I guess to reflect on as well. But, you know, I think a lot of the experiences that, a take home for me and ones I talk about are the ones that you know happen on a passive wavelength as well so you know when I'm not disturbing the animal but I'm sitting back and watching and it's amazing like if you go into nature and you can be somewhat um um you know passive and undisturbing it's amazing to see the experiences that you will have you know I had uh, many uh, many amazing uh, experiences in Africa and South America and North America and I think it's moments like that that you you don't forget. It's almost like snapshots in your mind that you just don't forget. Um, you know, Arnhem Land. I, I did. I just did a, a a trek across Arnhem Land, and you know, I filmed the entire journey. Uh, I'm just. I'm working with a production company at the moment, which has put the whole thing together as a series. But you know, there were moments in time where a lot of people watch the content that I produce, and to be honest, that's probably less than five percent of my experiences actually out there in nature you know, or probably even less than that. And I know the same would go for, for Adam as well when he, when he does his hunting, you know. Turning on the camera is merely us wanting to show the world, you know, um, at our, you know, at, at a time which is right for us, you know, all, all the other times, I guess, it's just us being absorbed by nature. So, um, yeah, Adam Land definitely had some experiences as well, you know, experiences that I'll, I'll, um, I'll keep close, close to my heart for sure.
2: Well, there's a lot of uh, when you are in in the wilderness, or you're out in the wild, or the bush, or the forest, or wherever you happen to be. There's a lot of almost mindfulness that happens. Like even this afternoon, right? I was taking me bin out, and I the, the, the breeze was blowing. It was a little bit warm, and I was just like, "How is this? This is beautiful." And I'm just taking the fucking recyclables out. Imagine being out like in the in ardenland, yeah. or something <laughs> like that. It'd be incredible. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but it is. It is something that I think a lot of people miss out on. And perhaps the feeling you have when you're being charged by a massive bull elephant, maybe it is that primal feeling that brings you back to Earth. And, and as you said, uh, re energizes or revitalizes your sort of your being, if you will. Um, because there is this weird energy that comes with animals and, and nature. And, and when you're getting it amongst it, like I, for one, hate being away from the ocean. Like, I, I was born really? on the coast, and I, I just, right. when I go away on tour, I like to get back. I like to see it, and then I'm happy sort of thing, you know? It's this weird thing of when you're inland and you're landlocked and you can't, there's no, I don't know. It, it just seems because the ocean is obviously... It's a point of
1: reference. Yeah,
0: yeah it's, it's a it's giant, familiarity. giant point of reference.
2: And it is, it is so vast, it is so big, and you look out of it, and it sort of puts things in perspective, you know? It, it makes you feel... Uh, human it doesn't make everything feel like it's your issue or your problem or you know a lot of people obviously have uh the feeling like their entire world or the entire world revolves around them and then you see something like that and you just no one really gives a fuck all right let's just get on with it the whole moss rock floating through space
1: definitely well, I, I would i would definitely have to say like going out because i do survival expeditions from time to time i dare say um you know, when you're out there and you have to, you know, it's it's the fact of being able to rely on yourself. You know what I mean? It's such a rewarding feeling. It's a, it's an empowering feeling to know that you can sustain yourself in the wild without society or without anyone's help. And you know, I, I know when I was when I was in the depths of Arnhem Land and I was doing that survival, um, you know, across Arnhem Land, it was just, it, it was it, it was just magical, and it was it was this kind of. Um, Um, you know awakening to know that my ancestors and that's a crazy thing is like if we want to really look at it this way it was only two to three hundred years ago that your ancestors and my ancestors were essentially living off the land as like hunter gatherers you know yeah they might have had their own agricultural kind of you know thing going on but they were still actively out there doing hunting as well so You know, we, we haven't really detached too far from that. You know, we, we can go back to that. And it was interesting, you know, I had a moment just recently, this whole COVID thing and people were freaking out. And I was wondering, you know, um, if people had the skills and the abilities, could could we potentially go back and live out there in the wild? And I think I think there'd be a percentage of us that could. I don't think as individuals, as solo individuals. So if I was to just go, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to go out there and try and survive by myself and see how long I can last for. I don't think i'd last that long i think humans have to work together um you know i think the reason why we have communication we can talk is so we can organize things and we can organize tasks and objectives and all that kind of kind of thing um i think it's absolutely critical to have um you know women obviously for obviously for our uh, procreation to happen as well but it it can't and just be other out. very useful yeah. people
2: women <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah it can't just be like a whole male dominated thing like women have um you know, if not a more important role than the men, you know, like the men were known as the as the hunters going for meat, but you know, the women were were sustaining the men's energy systems by acquiring carbohydrates and all that kind of stuff. So I can't I can't go out for these long journeys of hunting unless, you know, I've had the help from from women. You know, so it was I think very romantic in a way to see our connection as well back in the day. And, it's, it's interesting to see how the roles and the responsibilities have changed. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, a very interesting insight. Um, you know, it could even be a really cool, cool experiment, you know, to, to just take um, a small uh, population of people, whether it be 50 people, drop them off in an area and just see if they can sustain themselves for a period of time. I think that would be a very interesting uh, experiment to do uh, from a psychological point of view as well.
2: I think, as far as the the gender roles, the next, the next big brother. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, big brother Bush. As soon as, as far as the gender roles are concerned in hunter gatherer lifestyles, I think the you know as you said there are very many uh, well, there are more and more women doing the male roles and the, and the vice versa and, and you know everyone's quite as a society society quite happy with that I think though if things did go back to the way that we were living our lives you know 300 years ago I think they may reverse they might may revert back to their old school th- sort of things and not that women can't hunt not that women can't uh, shoot a bow or they can't set up a trap but if you go and you hunt an elk or you go hunt a, a deer or a, or a cow or whatever, you know, you need the biggest, the strongest the, of the tribe to lug that leg back in or the, the, the back strap oh. or whatever to, to lug it back to the camp and, and and then to prepare it and all that type of stuff. I just think that that's perhaps how we're perfectly built to, to you know um to do those things in in that lifestyle but as i said like you know obviously things change now but it would be interesting to see how things would revert would they revert straight back to that or would they would they have a bit of a mix on it i mean maybe they'd maybe they'd have a bit of a mix maybe some women would be doing this maybe the transgender women would be doing that like i don't know i'm i'm sort of like right, right. i've <laughs> never thought about this to be brutally honest yeah it's certainly something it, that it, yeah an interesting about. experiment for
1: sure <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe you should put your hands up for it. I'd love to see you out there, all right. You've already got the beard to go, but you're, you're halfway there with the look, I reckon.
2: Well, one of the things, Andrew, that we're going we're gonna to talk about, me and you, is in the future, is uh, and Adam Greentree as well, we want to get out and we want to do a video out in the bush and uh, yeah. a bit of a survival yeah. thing. I don't know how that's gonna go because mate, I fucking hate camping, I hate it. I hate camping, yeah. I despise it, that feeling of waking up in the morning in a hot tent and you're sweating and it stinks. Yeah, right. It's just shits me, like there's nowhere to so, hang it. So it's, it's a comfort thing? Yeah, I like being comfortable. Oh, yeah. I don't like sleeping on rocks. <laughs> I got a prostrapedic for a reason. Right? I got a memory foam pillow, it's all happening at my joint. I got it all down down. gotcha
1: Um, I don't know well it's one of those things like it's it's it won't be hard for you to transition I feel like I feel like a couple of uh, nights sleeping on some uh, on some on some rough matting and after a while I don't know you'll just adapt to it I guess that's just how it happens but um, it would be interesting to have you out there like chasing some animals down like you know like a feral pig or trying to rope something I think that would be interesting but um, look like even with so I run tours on the uh in the in the seasons right and it's interesting to see like I'll take people out that have have had no natural skill sets or no real abilities out there in the wild and it's interesting just to see them change over the course of like a week and I kid you not like just to see their confidence change and I think inherently what happens is when they watch me go out and catch animals and stuff once again they're watching me and they're like fuck maybe I can do that you know what I mean and it's it's interesting like I, I feel like if you saw me go out there and catch a snake or a goanna or, or something like that, you'd take a step back and be like, you know what? Like what he just did isn't impossible. Um, you know, as humans, we're very observant. We can identify like simple skills and, you know, and, and work off that. It's uh, I don't think it, it would take too long to get you to a point where you'd be fucking amazing out there, you know, quite
2: quite literally, and that's being honest. I agree. I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I um... But, but surely catching snakes and all that type of stuff, you know, you've got to be having some injuries must have happened. Have you? How many times have you have been bitten by snakes? Countless?
1: Look, I've only ever had one real bad bite and I was 13 years old. I got bit by a black snake on the hand uh, trying to catch it. And then apart from that, I had a bit of a situation when I was in, and there's footage of it, uh, when I was in Mombasa, uh, which is on the coast of Kenya where I caught a spitting cobra and it sprayed me in the face. And what had happened that morning, this, this really sucked, is for continuity, like I'd had a shave. Like, so every single day I'd have a shave. So, yeah, so I looked the same during filming. And essentially what had happened was I had glasses on, but when this cobra spat in my face, obviously the venom like covered my face. Yes. And because I'd shaved that morning, my pores were essentially still open. I'd absorbed a small amount of venom through my pores. So that was absolutely fucking terrifying because Kenya doesn't exactly have the best like medical resources let alone anti venom availability so um, yeah that was that was a well, pretty What do you, what do you do
2: in that situation what starts
1: happening Sit down and fucking just relax I guess eh? like eh, um, you know cup I, of I, tea. fucking I don't know yeah sit down and have a cigar um no like look, I know it's, it's, it's hard to backpedal um, with a lot of the footage that I do because people would watch it and be like, fuck, this cunt's insane. Like, he's fucking crazy. But having said that, like, you've got to be really calculated as well. Like, the amount of times I could have died would be fucking countless. I, I could have died hundreds of times, literally. Um, you know, you do have to be calculated and the only way to be calculated is to, you know, have a lot of experience in working with these animals. And I guess that's just what I've dedicated my life to to doing but there is a red line you know what I mean there is a red line and it's one of those things that's kind of like when Steve Irwin accidentally passed away everyone was like oh you know sooner or later it was going to fucking happen or it's going to be like a a rogue accident like this and um unfortunately when you when you are in nature and you're dealing with animals that can be somewhat unpredictable there are accidents that happen look I know guys which are um which are deemed as some of the best professionals in the world experts and um Yeah, they've been caught out, you know, and they've been on the deathbed or in the ICU and all that kind of thing. So it is living life on the edge and sometimes you can fall off.
2: But I mean, if you're getting bit by a snake and you're picking it up, it's the same as how many many close calls do you have in a car? Like, there's always that opportunity where you look the wrong way or whatever and you go, oh, fuck, that was close. The same as a snake going for you. I mean, obviously, it's a decision that you've made to pick up something that's definitely going to kill you rather than (laughs) jumping in the vehicle to go to the shops. But... Right. still I mean you've decided to get in the vehicle and go to the shop so it's we i guess we what i'm saying is we take calculated risks all the time and it's the same with you know some sports and contact sports and all that type of stuff you go play footy or whatever you go into the field knowing that you could could get injured severely or you could break a leg or whatever and you do it anyway you know a life without calculated risks is a very boring existence
1: exactly well so, something interesting right and you're gonna be like there's no fucking way but I, I actually have two fears and I mean like I'm really fucking um, nervous about them. It makes me feel really uneasy. Um, so I'm terrified of flying. I fucking hate flying. Because, and to take a step back and look at the psychology behind it, it's because I have no fucking control. It's got nothing to do with the fact, well, I guess it's a lot to do with the fact that you're 25,000 feet above the ground in a cylindrical fucking tube. And if something goes wrong, you're fucking dead. And that's obviously a large part of it. But I think the greater part of it is if something starts going wrong, I can't fucking do anything. I've mm. got to put a fucking seatbelt on. I know I'm going to die. And there's nothing I can do to um, secure or prolong my existence on earth. I'm, I'm fucking dead. That plane starts going down. I'm fucking dead. And that is absolutely terrifying to me. So I hate flying. But
2: well, yeah. that, that was so me it- for many years. I, I couldn't deal with flying. I had... Uh, people when I was in year for my 18th birthday try and buy me plane tickets just so I could get over my fear. It was an irrational fear too. I was just scared. I'd never done it. And I was just like, right. no, I mean, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do it. And it got to the point where my first flight was to Melbourne with my partner and we just went down there and, and it was scary. And, you know, you take off and we're freaking out. We're going oh, this doesn't make sense. Why are we slowly rising? This is fucking weird. Seriously, as a kid, I watched too much air crash investigation. That freaked me out, man. That was was one of those things. Like, you were just used to... But as you said, you can't control it. It was the same for me when I was a kid. I was terrified of comets. I heard on the news one day, they were talking about a comet, right? I would have been five years old. And then I was out. My mum was hanging the clothes on the washing line at night because it was hot. And uh, a... Uh, shooting star went over this prick goes and hides under the pool table for about an hour and a half i was fucking terrified i thought it was all over but but i but i i got over the fear of flying by i guess just doing it all the time i have i have to do it you know for my job every every when i'm on tour i'm flying you know four flights a week so it's just eventually you just go oh fuck i'm too tired to give a shit at the moment But I get it. I get why. I get why it freaks you out. I get it. It's weird. It's It's not natural. It's like you're
1: yeah. Well, it's not. It's not natural. It's like you're accepting this um, this pathway to death if it does unfold. And I think, um, what spiders? I don't know what you like with spiders. It's funny because I feel like in the natural world, people are scared of like one of several things. They're either scared of snakes, right? Uh, Because they're unpredictable in the way that they move and they're venomous. Um, They don't have any legs, right? Uh, people are scared of sharks. Why? Because the ocean uh, identifies a place which is mysterious and dark and deep, and you don't know what's below you, right? And, and, fair enough, and they're
2: giant like, monsters
1: <laughs> with sharp fucking teeth <laughs> right? uh, designed People can um, people scared of birds because of the way that they flutter um, and move around, and um, spiders. Like, I've always had an intense fucking fear of spiders um, because you know a, a spider can go from like zero to Zero to 100, you can't predict which way it's going to move. It can be here, it can be there, it can be, you know what I mean? Like, I think the sense of fear in that is not to do with the bite of the spider. It's to do with the fact I can't predict what the fuck is going to do.
2: Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure.
1: Ter- fucking terrifying. I fucking hate them.
2: For me... For me, I don't like spiders, I don't like snakes, I don't like a lot of things. But for me, cockroaches freak me the fuck out. I cannot deal with cockroaches, I fucking hate cockroaches. I've slept in a particular hotel and a cockroach crawled in my mouth in the middle of the oh. night and fucking just fucked me. I've had them on my shoulders, <laughs> I not, like, not all the time, just once. But it's just, it's a horrible thing and cockroaches are terrible creatures, they shouldn't exist and they shit me to tears. A hundred
1: percent. Well, I feel like that fear can also be instilled. Like I feel like spiders, that fear came from my mum. Like right. fucking screaming when I was in the bath. So I remember she was washing me. I was about four years old. I was in the bath and a huntsman has fallen from a wall and went into the water. So obviously mum starts screaming. I'm in the fucking bath with this fucking huntsman and it can't climb out because it's like trying to climb up the sides of the fucking bath. And I'm stuck with this big hairy fucking creature. That instills. that's fear. what my missus feels like
2: when I jump in the bath with her.
1: <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> just a big a hairy get creature, get out, you creep. <laughs> 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 yeah, like, like any fear that you can track it back. Like my, my ma, she's terrified of mice because my pop uh caught a mouse and like its head was off or whatever. And he traced her around the house with a fucking mouse and she's shit scared of it. You know, 50 years later, she's terrified of the bastards.
1: That'll do it, I reckon. Hey, well, I've got an interesting, an interesting story. So, there was one animal. It's a little bit of a story, but I'm going to take you into it, right? And it's actually one of the big, one of the biggest regrets I ever had in my filming career with wildlife. Now, I've told the story a couple of times. So, I was in Kenya. I was 23 years old, and I was there with a guide who was about the same age as me. And essentially, I had a list of animals that I wanted to go out and capture. One of which was. A savannah baboon. And you're probably thinking right now, like, you don't fuck with baboons. They're one of the animals that you just don't fuck with. And unfortunately, for like a lot of the content that I produce on YouTube, like, I'll be the first person to catch this type of animal or first person to catch that. So there was no actual tutorial where I could learn how to handle or catch a fucking baboon, let alone like a large primate. And obviously, I'd had no experience here in Australia because we don't have primates here. So I really threw myself into the deep end. So what happened was this. I went to a local wildlife park, which is about 20 minutes away from Nairobi, right? It's like one of those dodgy kind of fucking wildlife parks. And I went there looking to find someone to get advice on how to handle baboons. When I got there to this park, there were two young men that came out, right? These two young Kenyan men. And I said, I introduced myself, hey, my name's Andrew Eucles. I'm from Australia. I'm a wildlife documentarian. And I want someone to show me how to handle baboons. I'm more than willing to pay them, um, you know, whatever it's going to cost them, da-da-da. So he took me to the back of the zoo and I had some baboons there. But the thing is, I was somewhat tame and habituated. I said, no, 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 I want to learn to handle a wild fucking baboon, right? And so the guy was like, right, I you know, just the place. So we went about five minutes from the zoo and he had a, like a box trap set up. You know, like those, um, like those mesh box trap kind of things. And so we went down there, we set it up with like fruit and pears and all that kind of stuff. He goes, look, what we'll do, we'll have the trap set. When we catch something, we'll give you a call. Literally the next day, I swear it would have been like fucking 5.30 in the morning. As soon as the fucking sun was up, I had a call. Andrew, we have a baboon, right? So I'm thinking to myself, fuck, we're on. So I grabbed my guide, we drive down to this location, meet up with these two guys, and we go down to this, this plantation of where they'd set the trap. And from the second I locked eyes with that fucking animal, it started instilling fear into me. Like this baboon was fucking going off the fucking cages. It was holding on. And I started really getting fucking nervous, you know what I mean? Particularly when you're dealing with animals I, I haven't dealt with before, there's a sense of, of nervousness that I have in me. And I think that's, that's completely natural, even for someone
2: such yes, myself as myself. Yes, absolutely that's natural. natural. That is okay. Right.
1: right. So here I am. There's this baboon, which it probably stands around about maybe 80 centimetres off the ground. Uh, You've you seen it like we've got like a, like a muzzle, like a dog. And as we're getting closer and closer to the cage, the bastard's trying to psych me out. So what baboons will do is I'll kind of look away and then i will look at you and then I'll look away and then they'll look at you and then they'll show you their teeth. So they're just trying to, you know, they're trying to over-dominate the situation. So at this point, I turn to the two guys and we're like right on the fucking cage. And this thing's like almost like a fucking wild bird in the cage. It's bouncing off, it's grabbing, it's biting the mesh. And I'm thinking to myself, how the fuck am I going to get in control of this animal? Well, how the fuck are these guys going to get in control of the animal? These are the guys that, which are supposed to be teaching me. So anyway, I was paying them uh, to teach me how to do this. And I said, all right, tell me what, what I have to do. And they're like, look, we want you to get on top of the cage strap. Lift up the door. I'm going to get it by the tail. And then my friend is going to pin it down with like a fork stick. And then I'm going to grab it by the arms and da-da-da and all this kind of stuff. He was going through the whole procedure with me. And I'm kind of like half listening at the same time, thinking to myself like, fuck. Shit can go wrong really quick here, right? And one of the worst decisions I made in my filming career was not to turn the fucking camera on. Because you know, I'm like the the wildlife guru. Like I'm supposed to I'm supposed to have the skills so that I can go, I can step into any, any country and can do whatever. And it was one of the biggest fucking regrets I've made was not turning the fucking camera on, which was on the tripod fucking behind me. But I said to my guide, I said, look, once he teaches me how to handle it, we'll get it back in the cage, then I'll do it on my own accord. Fair enough. Right. So I've jumped on top of this fucking cage. I've lifted up the cage door. This guy's went in. He's grabbed it by the fucking tail. This baboon is fucking holding onto the cage and fucking just going off. Like the birds are fucking flying off. And, mate, it was like causing the greatest, natural, um, vocal fucking orchestra Causing a scene. Mate. So what he's done is he's grabbed it by the tail. He's fucking pulled it out from the cage. The other guy's screaming, came in soon behind him. The baboon's trying to grab him, right? And the first thing that came to my fucking mind was, won't this animal use its tail as a leverage point to pull itself up? You know how primates use their tails to climb up and stuff? But obviously, because the animal was so heavy, it couldn't do that. So anyway, this guy's got up by the tail and he's doing these ones and the baboon's trying to fucking get him. And the baboon's realised, it's for to himself, he's like, right. So I know I can't fucking reach you, but I know how I'm going to get you. So what it's done is it's managed to grab onto the side of the door where the cage was, it's pulled itself in like this and then it's jumped off. And it's landed on his chest and it's went to bite his face. And in that split moment that it's went to bite his face, he's managed to get his arm across his face to protect him. So the baboon's bit been in here, right? This all happened in around about 0.01 of a second, right, a microsecond. And at that point, I was standing behind him. So the baboon's in, and it's turned like that towards me. So all of a sudden, these fucking baboons in front of me. The first thing I thought of was I've got to fucking grab this fucking thing by the shoulders and pull and, and pull it off him, essentially. And I remember in the split second that I had grabbed it by the shoulders and started pulling, the power of that animal. And I'm talking like I was in shock and adrenaline trying to pull this animal off to him. The power of that animal holding on to him was fucking unbelievable. Like imagine like a, a, a kid at the age of ten holding on for fucking dear life, right? So anyway, I've grabbed this animal, I've managed to just get it off him, and as I've gotten it off him, the animal's tried to go for me. So it's tried to grab me with its back legs. I've obviously, I'm obviously screaming at this point in time, because I'm not in control either. Drop the animal, and it takes off. Now I've turned around to assess the injuries, and this African guy's walked off holding his arm like this, going, fuck, 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 screaming, screaming. And I said, relax, everything's under control, all good. Just show me what's happened, show me what's happened. I remember he came over to me like this, and he's put his hand like that. And you know, when you take like a bite out of an apple, but it's not like a complete bite, it's like a chunk of like a flat kind of falls down kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so he's done that, mate. And the blood was just fucking. Oh, no. Out, so I took my shirt off, I bandaged him up. And anyway, there's a moral to this story. There's a couple of morals to this story. Starting with this is as I was driving into Nairobi Hospital, the main hospital, I'd found out that he was a volunteer worker. That was the first baboon that he had ever handled. He had absolutely no inoculations whatsoever. (laughs) The person who owned the zoo was on holidays and had his nephews taking care of the animals ascension. So they had no fucking animal training whatsoever. That day I learned a couple of lessons. One of which was never pay an African man to do something because he'll always tell you he's a fucking expert, right? He'll <laughs> always tell you he's an expert. And the second thing is, don't fuck with primates. We're talking about an animal that can use its right hand as good as its left hand. They're ambidextrous. Their visual acuity is fucking amazing. Their reaction speed's amazing. And they're just a fucking gnarly animal. You know what I mean, Like
2: Well, they say that about <laughs> chimps too. Like, there's the stories from America that people keep chimps as, as, uh, as pets, and they break out, and they eat people's faces off, and they just got this supreme strength. And you go to like, well, I've only ever seen one on a zoo, obviously, but like the the silverback gorilla, this giant looking like it's got armor plating on it, a terrifying creature, uh, but just looks like it's just so strong. It's, it looks like a bodybuilder, and yet it does fuck <laughs> all. Pull
0: your arms off,
2: fucking open. <laughs> now, on the topic <laughs> of, sorry, go on. <laughs> On the topic of primates, I wanted to know this because I've recently put together a, a documentary, a bit of a documentary myself. And I was out in the uh, in the wilderness in the glasshouse mountains in uh, Sunshine Coast hunting for the very elusive uh Yowie. Now, you're a man who spends a lot of time in the bush. Are Yowie's real? No, they're not. No, fine. <laughs> Well, you shit all over me fucking video, mate. Could someone yeah, go and watch look,
1: it? Look, I, I, I think, I think there's, there's a number of mysteries out there. The Black Panther of Australia, of, of Australia that doesn't exist. Maybe, and, and I know there were records that a Black Panther did escape. Essentially, well, it was one, I think, the American army, they brought over mascots. And I think two of the panthers were released into an area outside of the Blue Mountains, I believe. Right. The reality of the situation is this. And look, this is coming from knowing people in the industry who are ecologists and study, you know, animal patterns and behaviour and carrying capacity and everything else. In order for a species to be um, somewhat uh, eco- ecologically viable and to survive a length of time, I believe there has to be six indivi- no, sorry, 26 individuals, right, of a population, of a species of a population within an area, within a cluster, for it to be okay. a viable population. And this is talking about like genetic diversity and all that kind of thing, right? So the problem about, you know, people wishing that there was the Tasmanian tiger out there, the reality of the situation is, unfortunately, for much of that area which has been, uh, you know, ventured into before, you know, people set up game cameras, people do bushwalking. Um, you think that at some point in time, one would have been hit by a car or someone would have taken a fucking picture or, or that kind of thing. You've got you to take a step back and you've got to think, well, what was it about this animal that brought it to extinction, right? And if I think of the Tasmanian tiger, I think of like a camp dog, I hate to say it but an animal that was extremely curious an animal that was not nervous around people an animal that was opportunistic an animal that wasn't scared to go and you know take something out of like the bin out of someone's backyard or to steal the dog food or the cat food from from the, from the front yard they were a very opportunistic animal and because of that reason they were easily to hunt right so you know, there's a whole behavioural kind of thing that you can put into animals, um, you know, a whole behavioural um, framework that you can put into a species of animals to, to, to try and work out, you know, what made it extinct. And for that animal, unfortunately, it was a number of things, including its, um, the fact that it was opportunistic. It, made it, it was a very easy animal to hunt and to wipe out. You know, if it was more like a quoll or if it was more like a, um, I don't know, um, you know, a species of animal which is somewhat more uh, reclusive or or sensitive to human encroachment and that kind of sure. stuff, then it probably could have fucking survived in a very, really remote spot in Tasmania.
2: So but- you, you would think by that logic that if a Tasmanian tiger or thylacine was still living, that someone would have seen it because they are, because they have those characteristics, those behavioral characteristics, that they go out and they try and uh, they're not scared of people. They'll go out and they'll do this, they'll go out and they'll do that, and they'll always. Uh, eventually, be in the eye line of someone with a camera or something like that.
1: A hundred percent, and not just that. You think of you, you think of roadkill as well. The amount of animals that get killed on Tasmanian roads and, wallabies. and the wallabies, and the wallabies were essentially the main food source of the Tasmanian tiger. You know, um, one one would have popped up sooner or later. I think the last account was in 1986, which was a Parks and Wildlife person from Tasmania that had the last real sighting and essentially what i believe happened i've actually got a a friend forrest galante which went to tasmania doing all the research on this part of his animal planet series "Extinct or alive um which is a really interesting series uh a producer i've worked with just with my history channel stuff but he he went in there to um you know disclose what was happening and and look essentially essentially the, the biggest thing for this species is the fact that a lot of the areas where they, where they survived in have, have now been developed. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think a small cluster population could, could exist. I love it to, you know, this would be every naturalist greatest fucking discovery, sure. like holy, holy shit. Um, you know, but, the unfortunate reality is no I don't believe this species is alive so it would have, it would have been found it would have popped up in someone's backyard you know even if there were 10 of them around the thing that you got to think about too is home range what I mean by home range is the area that an animal utilizes to to hunt and if it's anything like a dingo or anything like um, you know like a, a cat species generally the home ranges are like you know, it could be anywhere from eight to 20 kilometres. You know what I mean? That's a fucking big area that these animals are roaming, you know, not within a, sure. a one kilometre fucking space, you know. Um, I, look, I think there's a lot of questions whether or not they should, you know, in the future, if they do have the capacity to reintroduce it, doing the whole, you know, fucking Jurassic Park thing. I don't think the Australian landscape, particularly Tasmania, has changed that much. Um, I think it'd be great to fucking bring back an insurance population. What's
2: your opinion? Well, one of the things that we were going to do, and we're still going to do, and we're going to forget this podcast ever happened, is we're going to go and find one. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take Adam and we're going to ask you as well. Obviously, you're going to be on the uh, more skeptical side. But uh, that was something I was going to bring up with you at a later date when we, when we get the funding and all that type of shit. But uh, that's, uh, well, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk. And obviously, you know, you avoided the question on the Yowie, so you must be a government shill. Um, but the, <laughs> I mean, my thought is from uh, from someone who, who enjoys nature and, and, and animals in general, I'd love one to just be scurrying around somewhere. But logically, when you think of these things someone has to have seen one with, as you said, a trail cam or, you know, everyone's got iPhones. You'd think that would happen. Now when we did the Yowie video, the people who we did it with, they told us that Yowie's uh, I don't know if you're aware of this uh, interdimensional beings. So yeah. yeah, So that's why, you know, we don't have that, uh, that footage. Uh, So, you know, just wanted to uh, educate you on the matter there, Andrew. But, Um, it's one of those things where you know people's minds do run wild um but also in saying that the the Australian bush the American uh mid-northwest the the forest it is a vast area and I, I mean you know there's always that chance I mean I I think with Bigfoot a lot of the time when people see it in America they're seeing they're seeing a bear with with mange or it's got a a, 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 alopecia or some shit you know it's losing maybe it's overly stressed at work and it's just it's hairline's fucked up you know i don't know the people that you know bears from i, mean, I don't know what the fuck i'm talking about i've never left the fucking house but from what i hear bears uh, they stand on their hind legs and they walk around and freak people out
1: 100 percent. look there, there is a sense of um uh optimism and that is um so Arnhem Land, right, which is a very vast landscape um, in the northeastern part of the Northern Territory. There's even a, a landscape within that, right, which is which is um, Western Arnhem Land, and predominantly the landscape features of Western Arnhem Land are these huge escarpment ranges and crevices, um, which makes it almost it, well, it is. It's it's impossible for a human to actually go there on foot and to actually you know scour this this massive surface area. Uh, I, I'm one hundred percent sure there would be species of animals within those crevices and caves and that network there, um, which people haven't identified yet. They're not on our record book, record books. So whether it be small mammals or um you know reptiles the type of dragon lizards or um, you know species of snakes. Uh, I think that's probably one area in Australia that hasn't yet had that type of research and funding. And the only really way to get there is by helicopter. And even once you get into the location on helicopter, your helicopter lands, and then you can only survey that really small location before you just got to fly up and get to another spot and another spot. It's like almost fucking impossible to to um, to, to survey. But you know, I think if they sent research teams into that location, then uh, possibly. But I do have something interesting, right? So apparently, there is this plateau in the middle of the Amazon. Right, which has sparked a lot of interest uh, with, with guys in my industry. And essentially, I believe it was Discovery Channel that wanted to send an expedition onto this plateau. What's interesting about it is the plateau is so high that um, the Indigenous, so like, like the Amazonians and the Indigenous, the uncontacted, actually wouldn't be able to scale this plateau to get to the top of it. And it's some crazy area. Now, I think what's interesting is when I was in South America, I was talking to a couple of the Indigenous people there and there was an interview that one of the uncontacted's done with, with a journalist. And essentially what happened was when this journalist met up with this uncontacted guy, he gave him a gift, right? And that was just part of their tradition was to give him a gift. And it was this kind of like rolled up fucking, um, you know, fur fucking mattress thing. And at that point, he didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until they got back to the natural museum that one of the anthropologists looked at it and went, holy fuck, this guy, this guy from the uncontacted tribes had actually given this journalist a, I think it was, you know, the giant sloth? Have you heard of the giant sloth? It's actually supposed to be extinct the last 20,000 years. He'd actually gave him the cloth, the the skin of a giant sloth, saying that it was his great-grandfather who had killed the animal." Essentially wow. meaning that they were still only around 250 300 years ago, which sparks the whole new interest of, right, well, this plateau that's in the middle of the fucking Amazon, which is its own ecological area, its own fucking natural haven, who's to know what the fuck is up there? There could still be a small population of giant sloths. There could be populations of species of cats that we've never seen before or primates, you know what I mean? Uh, they're, uh, they're uncovering new species already in the Amazon every single day, let alone this location so it'll be interesting to see whether the brazilian government will give access to this area and they can get a production company up there to film it Um,
2: that's so fascinating to think that that is that in in a world where everything is covered by cameras and you know you would think that you know you've seen explorers go to the arctic and they've gone to the amazon and they've come back and that seems like a long time ago 100 200 years ago but there is still that one thing and i mean that's so fascinating even with 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 that, that is that that still exists i'm i'm going to let you you go back about back to back to your life but before i do it would be remiss of me not to ask two things number 1 is there anything that you have seen in your time in the bush that back on our subject before that you thought well oh, that's a little bit weird or Maybe there's a story to that, or maybe you've seen something that you couldn't quite um, couldn't quite wrap your head around. That's the first question. I'll wait until you answer that, then I'll hit you with the second, which is a very serious question.
1: Okay, um, I'm putting some thought into this one. Um, in terms of physically observing or seeing something that may be second guess my surroundings or the experience or interactions that I was having out there unfortunately I'd have to say no I haven't seen anything which um, has really made me second second guess however on another wavelength and I know there'd be a number of people that can vouch for this as well um, I have been in locations uh, where I've came across Aboriginal artwork and drawings and artifacts which when I've been in the present and I've came across that like when I've recently done this walk across Arnhem Land and I came across uh, a cave um, which was very very remote and I you know I stumbled across it when I was with my horse and I've seen this artwork there was a very chilling feeling that went through me that you know it's not often that my hair will stand on end but it felt like a very cold breeze just went fucking straight through me um, Which it could be a combination of a couple of things excitement, adrenaline, shock but I definitely felt you definitely feel that you're in the presence of something much greater than the physical world, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Um, And and yeah, you know, I think it was a feeling, a, a, a weird feeling that these paintings had probably been done tens of thousands of years ago, and here I am in a cave. All of a sudden, surrounded by, um, all this emotion, yeah. And you f- and you feel that you you really do feel that, you know. And it it really, it it's a it's a moment in time that you just don't you don't forget, you know. Um,
2: I I, I understand what the- you're saying. It's 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 for me. It's when I walk into a a theatre. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, oh, no, it is. <laughs> walk into the fridge No, it's where you walk into like a theater which, which, which has been around for 150 to you know 100 years maybe uh some of the older ones and there's been so many joyous occasions there there's been laughs there's been you know crowds there's been thousands of performances and there is that weird sensation in the air that, that does give you excitement and it makes you feel uh like something's about to happen. I, I sort of get where you're at. It's obviously not the 10,000 year that no one's seen this amazing artwork. No one's been in this area, but it is something um, quite similar. But Andrew, I need you to answer this for me, mate. The second question I have is... Uh, yeah,
1: you know, I'm waiting for it, guy. Okay? This, this is a build. I feel like yeah. I need a drink here. Like I should have like a fucking whiskey or like a shot of a like
2: tequila or something, guys. Next podcast, we'll get whiskeys going, all right? But is there any truth to the rumour? That you once found a uh, a dead emu on the ground, took its skin off, dressed as an emu, and then hunted a kangaroo with it. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> I thought it was going to be a worse question than that. I, think it was gonna be, I thought it was going to be, I was going to be like a relationship fucking question.
2: No, I'm so not going like, me to meet to you. It's I'll... all right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I don't. You know, it, you know, it's interesting. So that that idea in itself, I don't think I I definitely wasn't the first person to come up with that. Style of idea, you know. Indigenous people have been using some amazing fucking techniques to catch animals over the years. Uh, in fact, there was one I heard about recently, which kind of made sense. And I did incorporate it into one of my videos, and it was so the indigenous up here, the aboriginals, they hunt this um, this geese. It's called a magpie geese, right? So what they would do is I'd go out with boomerangs, and they'd like try and hit like one or two of these geese, and you know if they got lucky with a shot. But once they would caught one. They would actually gut out the bird. It's actually quite a large bird. So they'd gut out the bird, right? They would put a stick through the neck just to keep it propped up. They would put the, uh, the magpie geese over their head. They would cut out a section of the front where the feathers were as eye holes. And then what they'd do is they'd go into the billabong. But they were smart, you see. They'd go into a billabong where there were no magpie geese, but they knew that there was an area that was like 200 metres away or 300 metres away with all, all these other water birds. So what they would do is they'll have one or two guys set up in that location, you know, in disguise as these like little magpie geese things. Then they'll go and spook all the birds from the other billabong. Those other birds would fly over, land in the billabong, and then what they would do is they would go around systematically grabbing the birds from fucking underneath because the birds can't see them. Grabbing the birds underneath, snapping the neck, and then going from one to the other. And so they would collect up to 20... Up to 20 That's like Jaws.
2: Birds. It's like the Aboriginal version of Jaws. <laughs> sneaking so, from underneath. It,
1: it's incorporation and it's using nature to your advantage. And I know, I think it was the um, the North Americans used to do something similar with the bison, I believe, as well. Uh, they'd have two people and they'd kind of get inside of a bison and they'd use it as a technique to get closer. So um, although I, I, I felt like I was being original in my idea, and I don't think it's probably been done with emus and kangaroos before, it is, however, uh, quite an ancient technique that's probably been used the last fucking 50,000 years. It's crazy.
2: You'd never think of that, but <laughs> it, it genuinely worked. And I was fascinated to watch that yeah, video. Because, right. you know, like, you, you start watching that video, you just go, what the fuck is Andrew doing? And then you go, it fucking worked. This is fantastic, you know? And to think about, you know, ancient, uh, well, not ancient, but, you know, two, 300 years ago, Aboriginal people in Australia right. doing exactly that. Um, I think it's a very, very interesting thing. And it shows how ingenious people become when their main goal for the day is trying to feed oneself. And I think that brilliantly, may I say, <laughs> yeah. brings this podcast absolutely full circle. Andrew, thank you so much, my friend. Is there anything you'd like to plug on, uh, on this channel to try and get people somewhere or do something? Um, oh, look! I think my, my my natural message is just telling people to get out there. You know what I mean? Get
1: out there, experience the natural world, um, connect with it. It'll make you happy in many ways. It just it just really will. You know what I mean? Uh, if people are feeling down or you know things have happened in their life, nature definitely has answers. You know, answers that we can't get in society. um You know, so that's I think that would be the the, the big take home message. Um, you know, I've taken it as my own personal plight as part of my my business niche to do tours to get people out there and stuff but you know everyone's going to have their own way of connecting with nature at the end of the day but uh, it all it all starts with making the choice to just step out into the wilderness and i think people can really find their freedom out there
2: and how can people get in contact with you well not in contact but like see you
1: say um, yeah, so so I've got I've got two two websites so uh, AndrewEuchals dot and Euchals Wild Tours, and uh, essentially like it's very easy to navigate. People can get on there and see what I'm up to and you know upcoming things and that sort of stuff. And if they want an experience in New South Wales or the Northern Territory, um, yeah, just send us an inbox and we can we can get you out there
2: beautiful and we'll uh we'll put all that type of stuff in the description below Are you andrew thank you very much for coming on mate i'm sure we'll uh we'll, we'll get something happening in the future if you got time i think that'll be very interesting to get out there and, uh, and get amongst it mate so thank you very much for coming on brother i really appreciate it
1: definitely thanks so much for the chat mate that's no, been it's been good
2: yeah it's well mate we've been on bloody fire don't worry about that some of our best work <laughs> jesus christ somebody stop us good on you mate see you later
1: <laughs> see you mate